Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast. My name is Rowan Doyle and with me is Natalie Gaspar and we are partners in the Herbert Smith Freehills industrial relations team and we're welcoming you to our first episode of our new podcast. Nat? Exciting. Um, Of course, for the first podcast, we can't go past talking about the Job Summit on the 1st and 2nd of September. Rowan, I think my invite got lost in the mail, but I was certainly (laughs) actively watching the live stream. So we've been, um, and actually that's the culmination of many months that our team has been very actively looking at uh, the Albanese government's discussions going into the election. Um, so yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting. So if you look at the outcomes from that summit, I know you'll talk about um, about that in a bit more detail. But it's the first time we've seen a number of things that on their own are relatively benign, I think, Roe, but if you put them together, could have quite a significant impact for employers in bargaining. Yeah, I, look, I agree, Nat. You're spot on. And I mean, the, the scope of the reforms, I think it's fair to say, pretty unclear at this mm. point. We do have an outcomes paper from the Job Summit. They're very broadly expressed yep. and the detail will come soon. But of the list of actions that are set out in that paper, on my count, we have 12 immediate actions that relate to industrial relations. That's on top of a further eight areas that are identified for further work, Mm. again, relevant to industrial relations, on top of the existing commitments that were made in the context of the election, uh, there were 13 of those. So I think if you add them all up, that's 33 potential reform items that might impact industrial relations in our country. And do you know what I think is really interesting? This wasn't, the most recent election wasn't a referendum on industrial relations, I think. The last election, the Morrison government probably had a mandate to create some reform in industrial relations that didn't come to fruition. There was the failed attempt at the omnibus bill, which went through in a rather anemic state, I think. And then before that, certainly there was a lot of discussion in relation to multi-enterprise bargaining. Rowan, I know you made some comments in relation to that um, at the last occasion, which are quite prescient and, and relevant now. So I agree, Nat, as I would. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. I think that, well, there's a lot we could talk yeah. about on the Job Summit and the Outcomes paper, and we'll probably need a few uh, podcast episodes in order to get through it. But What I'd like to do today, Nat, if you're comfortable with this, is really focus on three issues. The first one, termination of enterprise agreements. Now, there was a a long debate about that in the lead up to the Jobs Summit. Um, There's been suggestions that there uh, should be the removal of the capacity for employers to terminate expired EAs in the context of bargaining. The second thing I'd like to cover, Nat, is multi-enterprise agreements, multi-employer bargaining. Again, there's suggestion that perhaps the scope of the existing Mm. regime should be broadened and there should be an increasing ability for uh, unions, employees to potentially force multiple employers to uh, engage in bargaining together. And then finally, we should wrap up perhaps with a general discussion about how all these reforms might interact together and what the practical impact of them might be for uh, on-the-ground industrial relations in Australia. Sounds good. So... First cab off the rank then, termination of enterprise agreements. As you said, there was a lot of discussion about this leading up to the summit. Certainly the government has said that this is probably the first thing that will be legislated. 
So, so what is it that is looking to be legislated? So the government has said that it is looking to remove the ability of an employer to unilaterally apply to terminate an enterprise agreement after its nominal expiry date during the course of bargaining. Um, as it stands today, there is that ability. It's fair to say, Ro, that's, that's not um, often utilised though, is it? There's only a handful of applications because as the the architecture exists at the moment, it's still already a relatively high bar in order to be able to satisfy the Fair Work Commission that the circumstances exist to justify a termination in the circumstances. So those applications that have been made, there's typically protracted um, negotiations, protected and often unprotected industrial action, and the employer's really pretty bloodied by the time that the application has been made. Now, of course, as it stands today, the Fair Work Commission needs to take a whole bunch of things into account, including the views of the parties, the public interest and the like. So interested in your, your thoughts on, on that um, and, you know, why there's been so much discussion about something that's not very often used, but certainly one of the very few um, things in an employer's armoury when bargaining and dealing with industrial action. Look, you, you spot on that. You've raised a couple of really important issues there that we should unpack. Mm. And the, the first is how often do employers actually resort to these applications? Now, I've got some statistics oh, for you there, classic, Nat, which the, <laughs> the team has helped pull together. In the three years from 1 July 2019 to 30 June 2022, so the yep. last three completed financial years, there were only around 25 of these applications that were made by employers made. to terminate an enterprise agreement that were determined following a contested hearing. Yeah. So only 25 in a three-year period. And of those, only 19 Nat, were successful. Yeah. Now, you contrast that with how many enterprise agreements are made and approved in each year. You know how many that is, Nat? Oh. Two and a half, three thousand? Three thousand, that's a good guess. Around <laughs> about three and a half thousand yeah, okay. enterprise agreements made and approved each year. So 25 mm. applications and 19 terminations is a drop in the ocean. So it seems to me that the concern that's been raised by the ACTU and the union movement more generally really doesn't relate to actual termination no. of agreements. It relates to the mere spectre or threat of them, which sort of brings us to the next point you raised, Nat, and that is the threshold that the Fair Work Commission has to apply in deciding whether to terminate. I mean, for each of those 19 terminations, for every one of them, the yeah. Fair Work Commission decided that it was appropriate for the EA to be terminated. That's the test. Is yep. it appropriate to do so in yep. addition to public interest? Now, that's a very high threshold, Nat, yep. I think. And yep. so it really does raise the question, is this a reform that's actually needed? What is the problem that we're trying to solve exactly. here? Because to, to your final point, we're removing, I think you, you might have referred to it as a tool. It is a tool, it's a tool used by employers in, uh, as a way to, I suppose, extract lawful pressure in bargaining and extract reasonable concessions from employees and unions because there is a risk there for, for them unless they actually reach agreement on the terms. Yeah. There's a risk that they might actually go backwards and lose some of the hard-fought conditions yeah. that they have. Yeah. Now, once you remove a tool like that, I mean, what's left, Nat? There aren't too it's many other tools there. available. No, but lockout. Lockout's one. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, look, I wonder to what extent lockout is really, for many employers, another one of those kind of scorched earth type scenarios. Mm. 
the reality is um, it is very challenging and sometimes businesses quite can't afford to lock out their employees. There's not an alternative source of labour, which I think is another important point that we need to touch on um, in relation to same job, same pay and in the context of multi-enterprise bargaining. A contingent source of labour might not be available if we're in that world. Um, and so we've got the situation where an employer might have no choice but to lock out its employees, which um, seems counterintuitive, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and look, that's that's my main concern yeah. with this proposal, Nat, is that it might inadvertently um, lead to employers being pushed to utilise effectively the only tool that's left, and that is a lockout, which I don't think anyone really wants, Nat. I think we need to ensure that employers have other tools at the table, more measured tools. Yeah to apply pressure without resorting to I think what you described as the scorched earth yeah. approach. Do, do you know, Rowan, what one thing for me that's come up which has slid under the radar a little bit and it's um, talk of the Fair Work Commission having enhanced in, arbitral power in relation to bargaining disputes. So we're still, um, you know, in a bit of a speculation stage as to what that might look like. But one of the mechanisms that employers do use and, and unions and employee bargaining representatives really effectively throughout bargaining is the conciliation process through Section 240 of the Act. So that is the ability to go to the Commission, have a conciliation and discuss whatever it is in substance that's the subject of a bargaining dispute. Now, what has been alluded to is that the Commission will be granted arbitral power in relation to those disputes. So again, we've got this scenario where an employer might be met with bargaining demands. It, they can't be met for whatever reason. Um, the termination of an EA is no longer an option. We've got the potential lockout. The difficulty is that that employer might not be able to call upon other labour to continue its operations. It would go to the commission and, and seek assistance and, and perhaps be bound by the arbitrated, arbitrated outcome of the commission. So, yeah. I mean, that's the reality, Nat. That's yeah. where um, most bargaining, particularly the contentious one where an employer is pushing for some change, is going to end up. Because why else would a work group vote up changes that are against their interests? And I think we do need a mechanism in the Act to enable conditions to perhaps on occasion be wound back where mm. there's good reason for that in a manner that doesn't necessarily get the support of employees. So um, look, let's hope there's uh, some more robust debate about this particular issue before we see the detail of the reforms in the form of a bill. Mm. But you also mentioned multi-employer bargaining, Nat. Do you want to take us through the reforms that are slated well, in that area? We, we don't know yet, Rowan. So multi-employer or multi-enterprise bargaining is exactly that, what the name says, what you see is what you get. So it's the capacity for more than one employer to participate in the bargaining process. The great unknown, um, but presumably is the case, that employees who are, are employed by those enterprises can take protected industrial action in support of their bargaining claims. Um, what we don't know, the genesis of this and certainly the lead up into the election, it has all been about raising wages. We're in a high inflationary environment, there's there's cost of living pressures and the like. So, so if you take that, all this is designed to, to lift wages. Um, so part of that was discussion about having this um, brought into low paid industries where businesses perhaps haven't been able to participate in bargaining, so childcare, cleaners, those sorts of sectors. Um, it seems that it, it could well go much further than that, Rowan. Um, yeah, and look, that's the, the key issue. Yes. There's, there's probably three of them. 
One is, is this going to be a forced multi-employer bargaining regime or will it be voluntary? Yeah. Now, on that first issue, it seems to me that necessarily it has to be forced because we already have a voluntary scheme. Correct, we do. So it's the extent these are reforms that are proposing changes to uh, the Fair Work Act, then necessarily there must be thinking to perhaps move Something's this into a forced regime. The second issue you mentioned, Nat, was protect industrial action. Yeah. So will protect industrial action be allowed in support of claims advanced in multi-enterprise bargaining, multi-employer bargaining? Now, that... That to me is the most significant issue because if you do allow it, then, um, and if there are no limitations on that right, then you could potentially have entire supply chains taking industrial action at the same time. You could have uh, at its its extreme uh, entire industries or sectors taking industrial action at the same time. Now, if that's permitted and there's not a reasonably accessible release valve for that pressure, what are employers going to do? I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that will result in wages growth, that will achieve that objective. Yes. Um, but uh, similar to the points that I've made in the AFR, uh, at what cost? There will be a cost because not everyone will be able to sustain the That's demands right. that are made. And I think my concern is that it will incentivise employees and unions to effectively take a, a take it or leave it approach to bargaining hmm. because they've got all the power in that environment. That's right. So that's why we sort of come to the third point that you mentioned. What's the, what are the scope of these changes? Who's going to be permitted to engage in the multi-employer bargaining system? Is it just the low paid? Is it something else? What's the problem that we're trying to fix exactly. through these reforms, Nat, I think is the key question. And, and from what it sounds like, it's participation full stop in enterprise bargaining because I think one of the other things that we're... Um, anticipating to see is that access into the bargaining regime as it stands at the moment might be more directed by employees or unions. So, for example, it might be that the majority support determination process has gone away with. And so we're in this world where you're forced to bargain. You might be in the commission who ha- that has arbitral power. Your ability to call upon alternate labour and manage your operation is curtailed. Um, your the threshold, so your your participation and bargaining across an entire industry is um, not foot, and there's very limited mechanisms, as we know, to um, terminate or suspend protected industrial action, unless you're a business that you know is an ambulance or, or supplies water to the country or an airline. Um, your ability to stop or, or terminate that industrial action is very challenging. Yeah, they're extremely limited, and which raises the question that I mean, is there a, is there a proposal to expand the circumstances mm-hmm. in which the commission might intervene and act as a circuit breaker yep. to these campaigns? If if we're going to allow more industrial action to be taken across the country and, and more damaging campaigns spread across multiple employers, yeah. then necessarily I think we'll need uh, an improved mechanism to try and avoid the, the types of types of harm that would otherwise. Uh, arise from from that scenario. I think that that's a real area that we hope to see a lot of a lot more debate on during this consultation phase. I think that's right. Yeah. So I think look that we could go on about this all day. There's certainly um, a, a lot more to cover as part of the outcomes of the Jobs and Skills Summit, and yep. the consultation period has really only just started. But we might need to save that for another episode. Now. Excellent. Look forward to it, Rowan. Thanks to all our listeners for joining us, and we'll see you for episode two coming up soon. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. 
we pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.